shed tears over the broken down walls of Jerusalem in chapter 1. We watched as he showed compassion for the poor and oppressed in chapter 5. We rejoiced with the people at the feast, or we watched him rejoice at the Feast of, the, of Tabernacles in chapter 8. We watched as he led the celebration of dedication in chapter 12. But here in chapter 13, we're going to see him carrying out a much more difficult part of leadership. We're going to see him confronting sin. And as we do so, we're going to see a different side of Nehemiah. Look at chapter 13 and verse 8. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Verse 11, so I reprimanded the officials. Verse 15 at the end, so I admonished them. Verse 17, then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah. Verse 21, then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Verse 28 at the end, so I drove him away from me. In this chapter, Nehemiah is angry, he's upset, and he's in people's faces. And you say, well, he must not be walking with God because no godly man would lose his cool. Well, what's interesting is, in this chapter, more than any other, we see Nehemiah offering those brief prayers to God. He does it throughout the book at key times, but here he does it in verse 14, again in verse 22, in verse 29, and in verse 31. There is a time for God's leaders to get tough. And in chapter 13, we're going to see when that time is. Now to get our perspective on this chapter, we need to understand a couple of things. Number one, we need to understand the order. The first three verses of chapter 13 actually occur at the end of the chapter. We know that because of the phrase in verse 4, now prior to this. We read the first three verses and then what comes after happens prior to the first three verses. And we know that the rest of the chapter is prior to that also because in verse 15 we read the phrase, in those days, that is in the days prior to the first three verses, verse 23 again, in those days. So verses 4 to 31 take place, and then verses 1 to 3 take place, and that's the order we're going to look at them this morning. Second thing we need to understand in getting the right perspective on this chapter is the setting. We learn an important fact in verse 6. It says, but during all this time I was not in Jerusalem... For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king, and after some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem. Now, there's an interval prior to chapter 13 during which Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. He had made the 800-mile trip back to Susa, the capital of Persia, to report to the king. And you remember back in chapter 2 when... Nehemiah made the request from the king to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls there. The king had asked him in verse 6 of chapter 2, How long will your journey be and when will you return? And Nehemiah says, I gave him a definite time. Chapter 5 verse 14 tells us that time was 12 years. 
He left in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, his term as governor was up. And so he headed back to report to the king. And after all, he had accomplished what he came to do. He had already rebuilt the walls. In fact, he did that in 52 days. And after that was over, he took on an even greater challenge, and that was to rebuild the spiritual lives of the people. And so as Nehemiah travels back to Susa, which was about a five-month journey, he's probably feeling pretty good because the walls are built and they are strong. The temple is in full function. He also can reflect on the fact that there's been a spiritual revival in Israel. The people are hungering for the Word of God. They're fired up. They're committed. They, in fact, have signed a covenant to God saying, we will obey you. And so Nehemiah goes back feeling pretty good. But he isn't back very long in Susa when he turns around and he requests from the king again permission to go back to Jerusalem. Now what does that tell us? Well, it tells us a couple things. It tells us one thing about Nehemiah. It tells us that Nehemiah had a heart for the people of God. He had put in his 12 years. He came back to Susa. He could have said, that's it for me. I put in my time. But he's back in Susa and he's carrying the cup for the king again, but his heart is not in wine tasting. His heart is in Jerusalem. And he can't be satisfied until he gets back there. And so his burden is there in Jerusalem and he requests that he can go back. And he does so. But the second thing it tells us is that it tells us something about the people of God. Because after spending some time in Susa, Nehemiah begins to reflect on Jerusalem and he suspects that there are probably some problems there. And guess what? He's right. Because when Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem, he finds all kinds of problems there. They were on the right track when Nehemiah was there. When Nehemiah leaves, they turn aside. Now before you say, well, how could they do that? I want you to think about your own life a little bit. Many of us make promises to God on Sunday that we break on Monday. Many of us do well in our spiritual life when we're around other Christians or around our spiritual mentor, but when we get away, we often find ourselves failing miserably. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, used to like to say, it's the nature of a fire to go out. So you have to keep stirring it and feeding it and removing the ashes. And his application was that that's the way it works with the spiritual fire too. You have to keep stirring it up. You have to keep encouraging it. And that's why God has given us each other. And that's why God has given us spiritual leaders and pastors and teachers. That's why we need to gather together every week to encourage each other and to stir each other up. Wouldn't it be nice if I only had to preach one time a year? Some of you are nodding pretty rambunctiously. Wouldn't it be nice if I, you know, let's pick Easter when everybody's here and we could just, I could just preach one message and you could, that could last you for 12 months and you could come back the next year and hear another message. Wouldn't that be nice? You know why that doesn't work? Because the most common analogy God uses in Scripture to describe us is sheep. And what are sheep like? Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way. Sheep tend to wander, and that's the way we are. The, the hymn writer hit it right on the nose when he said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's our nature. We tend to wander away. And so it is with Nehemiah. He left the people of Jerusalem for a time and he came back and guess what? He found out that they had wandered. And when he returns, he discovers the evidence of their wandering in four areas. Four ways that the people had compromised. Number one, the house of God. Number two, the service of God. Number three, the worship of God. And number four, the plan of God. First of all, they compromised in the house of God in verses 4 to 9. There was verse 4. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they had put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, Tobiah is the enemy of Israel. When Nehemiah first came to Jerusalem as governor, we read back in chapter 2 and verse 10 that Tobiah was displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. He hated Israel. When they started to build the walls, he's the guy who was out there mocking them. He's the guy in chapter 4 and verse 3 who said if a, if a fox jumps on their wall, he'll knock it down. He fought them all the way through the project. And when Nehemiah was there, he was locked outside of the city. Last time we read about Tobiah was back in chapter 6, and it tells us he was outside of Jerusalem writing letters inside. That's as close as he got. But now when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, where does he find Tobiah? He's in the temple. Eliashib who is responsible for the chambers of the house of God, has taken one of those chambers and turned it into a townhouse apartment for Tobiah to live in. You say, well, how could that happen? I mean, who is this guy Eliashib? Well, you know, this guy Eliashib, we find out in verse 28 of our chapter, is the high priest. He's the primary spiritual leader in Jerusalem. And not only that, but if you remember back in chapter 3, there Nehemiah described the workers who worked on the walls. And guess who was named first in chapter 3? Eliashib. This is a guy who led the people as the high priest. He led the people in the work of rebuilding the walls. And now he's compromised. And he's got Tobiah inside the temple. Now how could he do that? Well, I think the answer is right there in verse 4 at the end. It says... He was related to Tobiah. Now, knowing what we do about Tobiah, I'm sure that this was not just a coincidence. In fact, what's interesting to me is if you turn back to chapter 6 and verse 18, it describes there some of the people that Tobiah is related to. Verse 18 says, For many in Judah were bound by oath to Tobiah because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Johananan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Tobiah was related to these people in chapter 6. Now we come to chapter 13. Some other time has passed by, and now guess what? He's related to the high priest of Israel. Now how do you think that happened? I think he scouted around a little bit. 
find out if the high priest had any sons that were available. And then he had his daughter go flirt with that son, and eventually it worked out, and they got married. But see, the first compromise that Eliashib made was allowing Tobiah into his family. He should have never done that in the first place. But you know, the nature of compromise is that when we compromise a little bit, what happens next? We compromise more. When we compromise in a little area, we eventually compromise in a larger area. And so he compromises by letting Tobiah into his family. And the next thing you know, they're at family picnics together. And they're talking, and he's finding out that Tobiah isn't that bad of a guy. And they're starting to become friends, and they're starting to become close. And pretty soon, Tobiah's saying, Eliashib, we're family. And after all, there are a lot of other rooms in the temple. And he compromises. He moves God's things out of the temple, and he moves Tobiah's things in. Now, does that ever happen today? Where's the temple of God today? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 says that we, the church, are the temple of God. And who is the enemy? The enemy is Satan. Do we ever make room for him in the church? Oswald Chambers in his book, The Servant as His Lord, wrote, Today the world has taken so many things out of the church, and the church has taken so many things out of the world, that it is difficult to know where you are. Vance Havner said, Today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are more beset by traitors within than by foes without. Satan is not fighting churches. He is joining them. And if we have any spiritual perception, we can see that happening all around us. But that's not the main application I want to make today. Because the temple of God is not simply the church as a whole. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us that our individual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, you are God's temple. Now let me ask you something. Are there any rooms in your life that the enemy has access to? Are there any places in your life where you have moved God's things out and you've moved the enemy's things in? You know, sometimes we view our lives as rather separated. We say, well, this is my spiritual life, this is my secular life. But when we do that, what are we saying? When we do that, we're saying, God, I don't want you to be involved in this area of my life. I'm going to move you out. You see, if we could look at our lives as a temple full of rooms, we would probably have some rooms for church and some rooms for spiritual activities and some rooms for business and some rooms for entertainment. And if we're honest, oftentimes we've got some rooms there that we don't allow God to enter. We've moved Him out. But you see, you are the temple of God. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You are the temple of God here on Sunday, in the office on Monday, in that motel room out of town on Tuesday, with your family on Wednesday, at the beach on vacation. You are the temple of God at all times. 
It's rather shocking when we read here that Eliashib actually moved the things of God out of the, the room and moved the furniture of Tobiah, the enemy, in. But it ought to be just as shocking when you look at your own life and see that you have areas in your life where you're allowing the enemy to have access. And you've moved God out. That's a shocking thing. You are the temple of God. Does God inhabit every room? Does He feel comfortable in every area of your life? Or are you compromising? And if you're compromising, what should you do? Well, let's see what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. When Nehemiah found out that Eliashib had prepared a room for Tobiah, he went in there and he took that furniture and he threw it out of the temple. And then he had the place fumigated. And then he brought God's stuff back in. Now, that is a simple solution. You know, to most of our problems, there are simple solutions. We just don't like those solutions. We tend to like to take a lot of time to work out. We say, well, given time, maybe this will work out. Well, compromise never works out. Compromise has to be dealt with in a very simple yet radical way. It has to be dealt with the same way Jesus dealt with the problem in his day. What did he do? He went into the temple and he cleared it out. Simple solution. That's what's got to happen in your life and in my life. Now I want you to notice something here. Nehemiah went in and he threw out Tobiah's furniture. Doesn't say anything about Tobiah. He threw out his furniture. And when he threw out his furniture, Tobiah was gone. What we often do is we throw out the enemy and we leave his furniture. We say, get behind me, Satan, and we leave his couch there and his recliner. You know, what happens? He moves right back in. See, the key here is he threw his furniture out. Now, what is Satan's furniture in your life? What are the things in your life that Satan uses over and over and over again to get access to you? You see, if you are honest about that area in your life where you seem to continue to fail, where you seem to continue to sin, where you seem to continue to compromise, if you will be honest about that area, you will find some furniture. You will find some things closely associated with your failure. And if we're going to get serious about dealing with that problem, we can't simply confess our sin. We have to throw the furniture out. Maybe you travel a lot in your job. And maybe the point of failure for you is that cardboard ad that sits on top of the television set advertising the in-room, late-night movie chain gang women or something. And there it is, right on top of the television set, and you're alone in the room, and nobody else is ever going to know, and all you've got to do is click a couple numbers, and it's there. Maybe that's the area you struggle with. 
Well, if so, it's not enough to simply confess that. It's not enough to simply hope that time will take care of it. You've got to throw some furniture out. Now, be careful. I didn't say literally. But you, maybe you need to change motels. You know, last time I was at Motel 6. They don't even give you a television unless you pay extra. Maybe you need to plan ahead and say, I don't need to be in that room with that temptation tonight. I should be somewhere else. I need to throw the furniture out, see? Maybe you need to go down to the desk. They have a little thing there that says you can report to the desk and they won't allow it to be operated in your room for the sake of children. Go down there and say, look, even though you call this adult entertainment, it's really a child that gives in and I'm a child and I want you to turn it off in my room. Or maybe you need to throw some other things out. Maybe if you're spending a lot of time in your car, you're listening to the radio and listening to just whatever's coming on and all kinds of music, and gradually, over the course of the day, you are being desensitized to the Spirit of God so that when you face that temptation at night, you're not ready for it. So maybe you need to change what you're listening to as you're traveling along. Maybe you need to get some Christian music in your car or a teaching tape of me or something... <laughs> That was subliminal, subliminal, there it is. Maybe there's reading material in your home that continually causes you to stumble. It's hopeless to say, God, I'm sorry I confess this to you if you're going to leave that in your house. You've got to throw it out. You've got to get rid of it. Maybe every time you go down to the video store to pick out a wholesome family movie, you end up picking up an unwholesome family movie for later. You ever notice some of these places? They don't have a section for that. They spread it all over the store. There's a plan in that. You're walking along and there it is, and there it is. These, these, this garbage, really. If you can't handle that, if you have a problem with that, throw the furniture out. Don't go. Or if you do go, take your wife with you. Or better yet, send her. See, you are the temple of God. And He should have every access to every space in your life. He should feel comfortable in every area. His things should fill every room. And if they don't, then you need to clear the other things out. Now, before we leave this point, I want you to notice one other thing. This was not Nehemiah's problem. It was Eliashib's problem. But Nehemiah did something about it. And I get real frustrated with Christians who know other Christians are doing wrong and they won't do anything about it. I get real frustrated with Christians who know other Christians are doing wrong and they say, well, it's their business. That is wrong. See, Nehemiah knew that Eliashib had done something wrong, he didn't sit on the sidelines and say, that's his business. He jumped in and he did something about it. And that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and reprove him. Paul said in Galatians 6, 1, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You see, if fellow Christians are rebelling against the principles of God, it's your business to love them enough to turn them around. And it's your business to love God enough to want to see His temple cleansed. 
But if you notice in Galatians chapter 6, it says you who are spiritual are to do that, which means you start with yourself. Don't worry about your brother until you've worried about you. And that's where I want to focus our application this morning. It's got to start with me. I need to go into this temple first and make sure it's all God's. Make sure it's cleaned out of all the furniture of the enemy. You know, for some reason, which I will never fully understand, God has chosen to make His home inside of me and inside of you if you're a believer. God has chosen to make His home inside of me forever. And that's an amazing thing. How could I do anything less than give Him every minute space in my body to live in and dwell in and feel comfortable in? The question is this morning, does He have all of that space in you? You know, one of the most disturbing verses in all of Scripture is 2 Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 2. It's describing a fellow by the name of Amaziah. He was king in Israel for 29 years. And verse 2 says, And he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Amaziah went through the religious motions for three decades, but he never gave God his whole heart. He did right. And other people looked on and said, my, he's doing a good job. But the truth was that he never gave God access to all the rooms in his life. That's a sad thought. I pray that that will not be the epitaph of your life or of mine. Second area of compromise and the one we'll close with this morning. Second area of compromise that Nehemiah saw was the service of God in verses 10 to 14. Notice verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. Now back in chapter 10, the people signed a commitment Part of that commitment was that they would give the first fruits to God and that they would give a tithe to the Levites. On the basis of that commitment, in chapter 11, when he was repopulating the city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah moved 284 Levites into the city. They were depending on the people to give to support them. And when Nehemiah left, at the end of chapter 12, we find that everything was running smoothly. But when he comes back, he finds Tobiah, who should have been nowhere near the temple, living in the temple, and he found the Levites, who should have been there serving, gone. And why were they gone? They were gone out of necessity. Because the people weren't giving the tithes, they had nothing to live on, and so it says they had to go back to their fields in order to earn a living. Now, why did the people stop giving? Well, I think we can point to several reasons. Number one, verse 5 says that Tobiah is living in the storeroom where they kept the tithes for the Levites. So he's kind of taken up the space that they should have had. Number two, we know that Eliashib, who we're told in verse 4, was in charge of the chambers of the house of God, 
The guy who's overseeing all of the giving, he has compromised with the enemy, and so he's not really running the program the way it should be. But I think the third reason we can look at is that it's because the people were not as spiritually alert as they were when Nehemiah left. You know, whenever God's people begin to decline spiritually, one of the first places it shows up is in their giving. When I'm happy in the Lord and I'm walking in His will, I find giving to be a delight. It's something I enjoy doing. It's something I do generously. When I'm not walking with the Lord, guess what? I get real grabby. It's like that's mine. And it's painful to give. See, giving is a thermometer and it's a thermostat. It's a spiritual thermometer because it measures our spiritual temperature. When I'm not giving generously and freely and happily, I'm probably not doing very well spiritually. But it's also a thermostat because it can set your spiritual temperature. And that's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. By giving, I can actually increase my spiritual temperature. When Nehemiah got back, he found the thermostat at zero and the thermometer at zero. They had put themselves first. They had put the things of God last. They were taking care of their farms. They were keeping clothes on their backs. They were paying their bills. They were looking out for themselves. But they had put the things of God at the bottom. They had put giving on that if-I-get-around-to-it list. And guess what? They never got around to it. And so God got zero, and because God got zero, his servants got zero, and they had to leave the service in the temple and go back to work, and so there was no service for God. If you came to Jerusalem, there was no fire on the altar in the temple. There was no sacrifices. There was no worship. The temple was quiet, except for the activity of Tobiah, who was living there. You see, the people thought that they couldn't afford to give, the truth is that they couldn't afford not to. You know, there was a prophet who came on the scene at this same time. His name was Malachi. And Malachi is easy to find. It's the last book in the Old Testament. I want to show you a couple verses there. Malachi came on the scene at this time, and this is what he saw in Israel. He saw priests like a shot. Eliashib who weren't honoring God and so in chapter 2 of Malachi he says and now this commandment is for you O priests if you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name says the Lord of hosts then I will send the curse upon you he directs part of his message to the priests but then he also looks around and he sees that the people are not giving to the service of God and so in chapter 3 of Malachi verse 8 he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. God says, when you rob me, I'll rob you. When you give to me, I'll bless you. That's heavenly arithmetic. Heavenly arithmetic says when you give God the first part, your 90% goes further than your 100% used to. 
And that doesn't make any sense in earthly arithmetic, but it's God's way of operating. God says, you try to hoard it to yourself, and I'll cause droughts, I'll cause payments you weren't planning on, expenses you weren't counting on, and it'll eventually go right through your fingers anyway. You put me first, and you'll have enough. I'll bless you. That's His promise. We get the same promise in the New Testament. Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and what? And all these things shall be added unto you. We don't compromise in that area, do we? Hey, boy, we've had some unexpected bills this month. What are we going to do? Well, we've got to pay the bank. They'll foreclose on our house. We've got to pay the bills. They'll call a collection agency. I know what we'll do. We'll withhold our giving to God. He won't notice. He won't care. Well, I've got news for you. God does notice, and God does care. He cares about whether we trust Him enough to put Him first. And He cares that we give to His service in this world. And He cares about us because He knows that giving is part of our spiritual growth. Some of us think as Christians we're reservoirs. We just sit around and take in. You know what happens in a reservoir eventually? Things get stale. We are not reservoirs. We are channels. God gives us things so that we can give them out and bless others. That's true with spiritual things. It's true also with material things. And that's evidenced by how Nehemiah responds when he finds out the people are not giving. Notice verse 11. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. Now if you read the end of chapter 10, you'll find that the last line of their commitment that they signed said, we will not neglect the house of God. So Nehemiah comes up in their face and says, what happened to your promise? You're neglecting the house of God. And he went out and he got the Levites and he brought them back to the temple and he put them in their post. Now that was a step of faith because they still had nothing in the storehouse. But look at verse 12. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. They responded by giving. Verse 13, And in charge of the storehouses I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Nehemiah put a whole new leadership team in charge of the storerooms. One was a priest, one was a scribe, one was a Levite, one was just a common person from among the people, but they all had one thing in common, and that was they were reliable, they were faithful, and that is always God's requirement. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, it says, It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And then verse 14 closes this section with a prayer Nehemiah says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of God and its services. Nehemiah was not in it to please men. In fact, he's probably upset an awful lot of people in Jerusalem. He's in it to please God. And he expresses that here. He says, Lord, remember me. Remember specifically what I have done for the house of God and for the service of God. Of God and we can be certain that God was pleased as he remembered that because those are two things near to the
to the heart of God. I wonder if God is pleased as He remembers your deeds and my deeds. Because I wonder whether our deeds are involved in the house of God and the service of God. I wonder if we're cutting out the compromise in God's house and cutting out the compromise in giving to His service in this world. In closing, I can't help but wondering how Nehemiah would respond if he came here this morning to check out the temple of God, which is you. If Nehemiah came here and checked out the temple of God, I wonder if he would find the enemy's furniture in there. And if he came today to evaluate your giving, I wonder if he would find the storerooms empty. I wonder if after inspecting you, he would have to say, why are you forsaking the house of God? Now, if he would have to say that because you're compromising, why don't you take the simple, radical solution this morning? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And just between you and God, I'm going to ask you to get real. And just say to Him, Lord, I've been compromising. I've been keeping rooms to myself. And I'm going to give you all of me. Come and reign over my life in every room, in every area, in everything. I'm throwing out the furniture of the enemy. I'm changing some patterns so he won't have access anymore. And then why not say, Lord, I've been robbing you. I haven't been giving you the first fruits. I haven't been giving you the best. I haven't been giving you what I know I should. And as I give myself to you, I also give you all that I own. Use it for the furtherance of your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.